Well, for the start of the fall, we are, we're focusing on the questions of God's love, the who, what, when, where, why of God's love. And today we are looking at the why, why God loves us. Our text is from the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 12, it's verses 1 and 2. So the writer of the letter to the Hebrews writes this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of our Lord. If you would, would you pray with me? God, Father, we come to this, your word, inspired long ago and given not just for long ago, but given for our benefit today. And we pray that you would, by your spirit, open our hearts. We need you to meet with us. We need you to change us. We have confessed that we are not people who are as we ought. But you deal with us as we are and you make us what we could be in Christ. And so we pray that even this morning you would be doing that as we look at your word together. Would you do that in us and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are a a billion ways I admire my father. But let me tell you about one of the biggest. One of the biggest was watching for the better part of two decades as he cared for my grandfather. As my granddaddy gradually declined and inexorably declined from a mixture of both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and watching how my dad took care of him week after week and month after month and year after year and even decade after decade. So my father would work a very full hard job all day He would get in the car in Atlanta, Georgia, where we lived, and drive a mile and a half south down to Griffin, where my grandparents' parents lived. He would care for my granddaddy two or three times a week like this, and then late at night, he would get back in the car to drive back home, often having to stop in various fast food parking lots to do jumping jacks to avoid just falling asleep and crashing the car. He made great sacrifices to care for his father. Well, why? Because he loved him. And understand, and make no mistake, it was a marathon, not a sprint. But he did it, and he endured, and he persevered, and he finished that race. Well, why? Because he loved his daddy who had loved him first. And the point here this morning is that when we appreciate God's love for us, It changes us. It gives us the power to love him, laying aside everything else. That when we felt God's love for us, it changes us that we love him in such a way that we lay everything else aside. And so this morning, we're going to think of this in three categories, three questions. Why, how, and what? Or maybe differently put, the mystery, the method, and the model. So we start with the why, the mystery of God's love. And right off the bat, we need to admit that there is an element of this that's just mysterious, that's just hard to understand. I mean, why does God love us? I mean, after all, 
God sees us as we really are, including all of our sin and all of our yuck. And yet he loves us. I mean, if I saw me as I really am, I wouldn't love me. I'd throw me on the trash heap and try a new model. But God sees us in ways that we even hide from ourselves, and yet he loves us. Yet he sets his love on us. Instead of rejecting us, he brings us in. Now that's both puzzling and amazing. And even though we're preaching Hebrews 12, it is a lot to ask for two verses to carry the whole weight of this question. Why does God love us? So the pastors and pastoral interns this week put our heads together to try to ask the question, biblically, what are the reasons God loves us? And we came up with at least five. There may well be more. But first, God loves us because he made us. In the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7, we have, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, there is something about having made something that you just innately love it. If you doubt that at all, step on a kid's Lego creation and tell me what happens. God loves us, first off, because he made us. But his love for us is much deeper and much more personal than just that. Second, God loves us because we're weak and we're foolish. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, Paul writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why does God love us? Well, second reason, because we're weak and foolish. Because if people like us, if creatures like us are loved, it cannot be because we deserve it. But in fact, the opposite, because God's glory is that amazing. Um, It's like the, the coach who wins the World Series with a bunch of scrubs. You know, it's not the players who did it. So the glory goes to the coach. Well, that's true, but God doesn't just love us by taking pity on us because we're so weak. Third thing, as we thought through this, God loves us because we're hidden. The epistle to the Romans, the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 39, Paul writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So third, we're loved by God because we're hidden in Jesus Christ. We are in union with him, the scripture says. We are in Christ Jesus. What that means is that when God the Father looks at us, the one who could judge, he sees God the Son. And we are hidden in God the Son, and with God the Son, he is well-pleased. And so he loves us because we're hidden in Christ, because he looks and he loves. And he is well-pleased, but that's not enough. We're hidden in Jesus, but the miracle of the gospel is we don't have to hide from Jesus. Because there's a fourth reason, a fourth reason, and this gets to the real mystery of it all. At some point, we just have to stop and throw up our hands and say, he loves us just because he loves us. It's a mystery how he would. The Bible also talks this way in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, talking about God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. 
But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and has redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In other words, God sets his love on his people. Well, why? Just because he loves them. The Puritan Thomas Manton said it this way. He said, If you ask why he made such a do out of a worthless creature, raised out of the dust of the ground at first, and a creature that had now disordered himself and could be of no use to him? Well, we have an answer at hand, because he loved us. But if you continue to ask, why did he love us? Well, we have no other answer but because he loved us. For beyond the first rise of things, we cannot go. Or, as we'll sing in our communion song in a few minutes, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. At some point, we do have to recognize the mystery of grace, that God loves us just because he does. But Hebrews 12, our passage today, adds one more reason here. And it's this, why does God love us? Because he finds you a joy. Look at verse 2 of our passage. Looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now that's an amazing statement that requires some serious unpacking. Note that it doesn't say that the cross was a joy. The cross was, and I use this word very literally and advisedly, torture. Jesus endured the cross, why? For the joy set before him. The cross is what he endured. The joy is the thing that caused him to endure it. Jesus endured the cross because the end of the race was a joy to him. And what was the end? Well, it wasn't the joy of communion with the Father. He already had that. It wasn't the joy of eternal fellowship with God. He already had that. It wasn't the joy of a crown of glory. He already had that. As Tim Keller says, the one thing that Jesus didn't have before he went to the cross was you. What's the joy that caused him to endure the cross? It's the salvation of the church. The biblical pictures abound. It's the joy of a shepherd over his found sheep. It's the joy of a woman over her found gold coin. It's the joy of the farmer over the harvest. The joy of a warrior over the conquests. It's the joy of a king over his kingdom. And it's the joy of a bridegroom over his bride. See, Jesus is the greater Adam who looked at Eve and said, Finally, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's the greater Jacob who worked 14 years so that he could marry Rachel. He is the greater Hosea who loved Gomer, his prostitute wife. Jesus is the greatest husband who would ever love a bride. And that bride is us, you and me, his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, quoting Genesis 2. And he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Jesus loved his bride so much that he despised the cross because it was a joy to save us. You are the joy that caused Christ to endure the cross. Because it is a joy for God to love us. Do you believe that? Well, if you do, it will change everything. So let me tell you now, second, how did God do it? The method of God's love. Why did Jesus love us? Well, many reasons. And yet it's still at some level just a mystery. 
but it's a joy for him to love us. But how did he do it? Well, now here the passage gets much more specific. Look in your Bible, if you have it, at verse 2. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's amazing. Like if I said earlier, if I could see me the way I really am, I wouldn't love me. But he not only sees you, he not only loves you, he showed it by dying on the cross. Now understand, when Christians talk about the cross, this is no metaphor. We are saying that Christ, literally, the one person who did not deserve to die, 2,000 years ago was brutally executed to pay for your sins and mine. The cross was a means of punishment. It was a means of taking people who were criminals and making them pay by suffering for their sins. It was a means of terror to make local populaces obey the Romans. It was a means of suffering. And that punishment, Christ took the cross. The cross was the worst method of torturous execution that they knew at the time. And it was nothing compared to the real torture Jesus received on the cross. The real torture was the wrath of God upon sin. And his joy is that he saved us from it. He took our guilt. He took our punishment. And then the text says, despising the shame. It was a shameful thing to be hung on a cross, to be hung up naked and left for all who went by to mock you, to be treated as the worst of criminals. But Jesus bore the shame that would otherwise be yours and mine. And to save us from that was his joy. Now think of the worst shame you remember. We all have them. I don't believe I said that. I don't believe I did that. I can't believe this was done to me. Jesus takes those shames, he lifts them off your shoulders, and he puts them on his own. It was his joy to save us. He paid our penalty on the sin, so that, of sin on the cross so we would not have to stand before God on our own. He took our shame off of us on the cross. That penalty, that cross, and that shame would crush us. But in the good news of the gospel, Christ was crushed for us. And the great news is that's not even the climax of the story. That's just the beginning. The good news is that three days later, the tomb was empty, that he is risen, risen indeed. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus' shame and Jesus' death weren't the end. And so neither are they for you and neither are they for me. To all those who trust in him, he gives the hope of life eternal and life as it ought to be, what God declared good and very good. Jesus' empty tomb isn't just his empty tomb, it's yours and it's mine. It's our trust that we have been delivered, that we can look to the end of the race because he looked to the end of his race. He endured the shame of the cross, despised the suffering, and he is no longer on the cross, he is risen, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling. And he loves us, how? By dying and by rising again. He didn't have to. But we were his joy, so he would do anything to get us back, even die for us. Think how different that is from the way the world loves, just for a minute. If you've never seen the 1984 film Places in the Heart, you doubtless still know the acceptance speech of Sally Field at the Oscars. It's become a bit of a meme, right? You like me. 
You really, really like me. I can't deny it at this moment that you really, really like me. And there's something in every one of us that says exactly that, that dies almost for that, that wants to be loved and wants to be liked and wants to be someone's joy. And everything in our society says you've got to merit that, that you get it by meeting certain standards, by living certain ways. The good news of Christianity is that God loves people who don't. Writer Henry Nouwen summarizes it this way. The world says, yes, I love you if you're good-looking and intelligent and wealthy. I love you if you have a good education, a good job, and good connections. I love you if you produce much, sell much, and buy much. There are endless ifs hidden in the world's love. These ifs enslave me, since it's impossible to respond adequately to all of them. The world's love is and always will be conditional. As long as I keep looking for my true self in the world of conditional love, I will remain hooked to the world, trying, failing, and trying again. It is the world that fosters addictions because what it offers cannot satisfy the deepest cravings of my heart. Well, there's not much rest for the weary if we're constantly trying to achieve. But if we understand the gospel, the Christian life is an experience of love. Because God's love is free, it's undeserved, it's unmerited. Love without motive. No beauty, no education, no achievement can make it any more. And no failure, no shame, or no stumble can make him love you any less. The next line in our communion song that we'll sing, Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we see how God loved us. And if we've been loved like that, it makes all the difference for everything. Why we've been loved and how we've been loved bring us to this third point, the what. What does that do to us? What does it make us? Looking to Christ who did this for us makes us different. Look how the model of love transforms us if you look back at verse 1 of the passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance and endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus. Hebrews 12 here says the Christian life is like a race. And it's usually a marathon, not a sprint. And seeing that we're Christ's joy, feeling and knowing his death for us, living in the excitement of our resurrection, that fuels how we run the race. Because Christ says, I've showed you the finish line. Because just as he could look past the endurance and past the suffering to the joy, so can we. So I remember many years ago finishing the Marine Corps Marathon when I ran it a long time back. Um, I remember huddling under the space blanket in the cold afterwards. I wasn't sure if I wanted to jump for joy or cry or just go to sleep. Because it had taken every bit of glucose that was in my body plus six miles more. And it's a really funny thing those six miles after you hit the wall. But the thing that you keep going through the suffering is because you know the finish line is coming. You look to where you're going. And then the Marine Corps Marathon has a funny second thing. One of the greatest reasons, if you don't know this, that it's a great first marathon is because you're almost never alone. You know, in many marathons, you have these long stretches where you don't even see anybody. 
the Marine Corps, almost continually, there's both a crowd lining the route, but also lots of other runners. And the crowd pulls you along. The two things that enable you to finish the race, and keep no mistake, at least for somebody like me, finishing a marathon is winning. One, you see the end. And two, the great crowd around you. And that's exactly what Hebrews 12 says we have. It says that as we look forward to Christ, who he himself finished the race, we can finish the race of the Christian life from here to eternity. And as we do it, we do it with his church around us, this great crowd of witnesses that helps us press on. So how do we run in light of what we've received? Well, the passage itself says two things. Look back at verse 1. First, laying aside every weight and sin that entangles. Let's be honest. There are lots of things that entangle our Christian lives. Lots of things that make it hard to run. Imagine this. Imagine you go out to the gym before you're going to run a marathon. Go over and you pick up two 30-pound dumbbells and then take them with you for 26 miles. You know, even our crazy CrossFit senior pastor wouldn't try that, right? What would you do if you were trying to run a race with two 30-pound dumbbells? Well, you'd throw them down as fast as you could. Yet somehow when it's the sin that so easily entangles, it's hard to let go because you're tangled up in them. And we find out that, in fact, you can't just drop them as fast as you could. It can be remarkably hard to quit holding on to those dumbbells. Whether that's pornography or whether that's manipulation or whether that's greed or whether that's anger or whether that's control, it seems that those dumbbells that slow us down have to get pride out of our hands. But when we realize Jesus died on the cross for us, we can open our hands and let them go. And second, verse 1 says, we press on, we run with endurance. Death on a cross wasn't quick. It was slow and painful and long. And Jesus could have climbed down off that cross. Make no mistake, it wasn't nails that held him there, it was love. But he endured to the end for us. And suddenly that changes how we endure. Fighting sin for a moment, y'all, is hard enough. Fighting it for a lifetime, that's a real fortitude. And the rest of Hebrews 12 gives example after example after example of exactly that. Normal, ordinary people, sinful people, who nonetheless finished the race and won the race and crossed the line. Now, some of them, like Abraham, were doing a pretty good run when they crossed the line. He had his problems back at mile 10. Others of them barely crawl across at the end like Samson or Gideon or Jephthah. But all of them finished the race in God's grace. Ordinary, normal people who could run the whole race in light of the grace they'd received in right of Christ. They all crossed the line, and so can we. Because Jesus finished the race you and I can run all the way from here to there. And if we understand that we ourselves are the passion of his life, his joy, then he'll become the passion of our life, our joy. So let me just close by asking you this directly. Do you realize God takes joy in you? He doesn't just love you begrudgingly or with reservation. He doesn't just love you because you ha- he has to. He loves you because if you're in Christ, he just loves you and you are his joy. He likes you. The love of God the Father, given to us in God the Son. Well, knowing that really does change everything. So let's pray. God our Father, we pray that in some tiny way, 
you would touch us with the gospel. That the good news of Christ's love for us really would change us. We pray that you would give us the perseverance to move forward in faith. That you would give us the grace to, even if you have to, pry these dumbbells out of our hands that slow us down. We pray that you would give us the fortitude and the grace and the endurance to run this race well. That you would meet us in our need and that you would somehow impress in us the truth because it is true that you take joy in us. Many of us have trouble believing that, Father. We're even willing to believe that somehow you begrudgingly love us, but the Bible's picture is bigger than that, so help us to get it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many things that the Bible tells us, in fact, God has done to help us remember. And there are many things that God has done to give us pictures of his joy in us. One of them is this. Jesus, in John 17, in his priestly prayer, prays, Lord, may they be one so that in them joy may be complete. You're his joy. And the night he was betrayed, on the night before he was betrayed, Thursday night, he took this meal together with his, with his disciples. And he said, do this because in doing it, you remember me. We remember the joy set before him. We remember that our Lord finished the race, that he made it to the finish line. He didn't just look at the cross on that Thursday night. He looked past the cross to the resurrection and the victory. He looked past the suffering to the joy set before him. As we do this meal together, it helps us do the same thing, to remember it's true. He didn't just die, but he rose again. And that gives us the endurance to finish this race too. So as we share together, God meets with his people. Now, understand, bread remains bread. There's no chemical change. Juice remains juice. But there is a very real thing that goes on beyond just remembering. The scriptures tell us that God in the sacrament meets with his people in a special way. It's not physical, but you know there are all sorts of non-physical things that are still true. Love is the greatest example of that. You can't measure it, you can't count it, you can't weigh it, but you don't doubt it exists. And in his sacrament, he meets with us in his love. So as we take the sacrament together, we do it to remember him. Let's pray and then discuss. Lord, we take these, these elements and we set them apart from the way we normally use them to the way we use them now to celebrate in remembrance of you and in obedience to your command to us. We pray that you would strengthen us for the race, whether our race will be days longer or years longer or decades longer. That you would, in your word and now in your sacrament, meet with us in a real way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.